0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, I was born an original sinner.
2: I was born from original sin. And if I had a dollar bill for all the things I've done, there'd be a mountain of money pile up to my chin. Hi. How's it going, Grady Nation? Chris Thomas here. Hope you're having fun a A kind of day. On this installment of Grady Nation, I'm speaking with Matthew Karchner, who has founded a nonprofit ministry known as Castaway Ministries. Man, how are you doing?
1: Good. How about you?
2: And how many folks currently participate in this ministry? I'm doing fine. I'm just <laughs> I'm eager to chat with you. So how many folks participate in this ministry at this point? We are
1: very, very small, and by small I mean army of one. Small. We have a board back in Pennsylvania, but I'm the only one over here, and um, don't have a team or anything. So it's it's pretty. It, we're kind of like a microcosm of a of a larger nonprofit. We have a an online presence, and do I do monthly updates to report back to our prayer partners um, back home, and. Have a small kind of homegrown youth ministry next to the apartment and go out to witness to the LGBT and the Lord leads and marketplace kind of ministry and that sort of thing. So um, I have a full plate. I'm actually at the end of seminary right now, two years, and it's been a lot to handle, but the Lord has been with me through it.
2: Now, you grew up in Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh, if I remember correctly. And you were you were once a, a banker. What was it like growing up in Pennsylvania?
1: I grew up in a small town called Clearfield on Interstate 80, about two and a half hours from Pittsburgh, and then went to Pittsburgh when I was 19 for school. So I went to University of Pittsburgh at Johnstown for one year and then um, about three and a half years down in Pittsburgh at the main campus. It was uh, 1980s. Late eighties, early nineties growing up in small town Pennsylvania. It was good. It was kind of like something out of a, a movie, like a coming of age kind of film. There was I grew up in a place with a kind of a dead end street and a park at the end and a train track. The the trains would come through periodically carrying coal. It was a coal mining town, kind of picturesque and cinematic place to grow up. How many brothers and sisters did you have, if any?
2: None. Oh, only child. Okay. So given that, how was your relationship like growing up with your parents?
1: Good. Very close with with dad and mom. And dad did a lot of outdoor things with me. Very kind of outdoorsy, hunting, mountain biking, camping, all the Memorial Day, Labor Day, and those kind of things were were typically family picnic and mountain bike ride to start things off that would usually end in a, in a picnic type of thing. Dad and I were up on the, the hill behind the house often on Saturdays, and um, he wanted to spend a lot of time with me, and uh, that was good. I think somebody, you haven't delved into my testimony yet, but a lot of times people assume that, that the opposite would be the case of somebody who would struggle with homosexuality, but in my case, he really wanted to spend Um, a lot of time with me and invest a lot in me. It was really a good example of of a masculine, Christ-like father. As an
2: only child, did you feel pressure
1: to do well in your
2: studies and in life? What was the dynamic like as an only child?
1: Not so much. Uh, No, my parents didn't, didn't pressure me that much. They they really encouraged. Uh, Obviously they wanted me to follow the Lord's plan for my life and that didn't happen. So there was uh, some kind of underlying pressure to, to do what the Lord would have me to do. You know, we were a very strong rooted Christian family and um, my dad was an elder and treasurer in the church. My parents were youth group leaders for several years and um, they were very active in ministry. And we were in church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night, sometimes on Friday for youth kind of thing. I was in the Christian school next to the church. So they were very, very much wanted me to do what the Lord would have me to do, but not so much pushy in terms of um, grades and that sort of thing. Encouraging, but not not pushy pressure.
2: Now, I noticed that within the answer of you know, interaction with your parents, you talked predominantly about your dad, what was the relationship like with your mom? Did you feel any particular way about your mom growing up?
1: Yeah, my mom set a, for me, very unique example in in terms of she submits to my dad, even to this day. They're they're still alive and healthy. Praise the Lord. About 70 years old around there. Um, My mom, follows the biblical model that she submits to my dad as unto the Lord. However, she's always had a voice. She's always, uh, had a little spring in her step. If you would, if you want to put it that way, she's, uh, she's feisty and she's, uh, she has a good personality and she's, she's not, uh, like I think when somebody talks about wifely submission that they think, oh my goodness, it's anti-woman, and, and you're, you're talking about hating women and that kind of stuff, and she can't have a voice and may as well just whimper in the corner. That wasn't my mom at all. But at the end of the day, my dad had the final say in decisions, and he was the head of the home, like the Bible says, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and many other supporting passages. Um, she also worked a full-time job. She kept the house spick and span. Um, there's nothing weak about my mother. And she also followed the biblical model, which which to me is really amazing. And and I don't know that I've met any other women. I Actually, if I think through, I don't know if I know another woman who's who's been able to balance to the degree that she's been able to balance to be strong and also submissive to her husband. Okay, we'll put a pin on
2: that and get back to that dynamic in a moment. But what was the first instance that you can recall of feeling attracted to someone from the same sex? And what went through your mind, if you can recall, as you had those feelings?
1: About 12 years old, when puberty hit, and I remember going, I think we were on kind of summer break when a lot of the boys' voices seemed to change, and mine didn't really change along with theirs at the same time, and so we went back to school. I don't know if that would have been seventh grade or eighth grade or what, but it was somewhere around 12 years old, 13 years old, and uh, the boys were kind of chasing the girls and interested in the girls, and I was not, I I was shameful about my my attraction to the boys and I it wasn't like a, a formal sexual 100% uh, I want to act on this today kind of thing it was something of shame it was something that I, I wanted to get away from I wanted the Lord to take away from me and I, I when I even got to the point where I could start to digest that I you know, start to kind of admit to myself in some way that I was feeling these these feelings, then I would cry myself to sleep, pray the Lord would take that those feelings away. I really hated myself. Um but first I think it was kind of a, a denial, a lot of denial like, Oh, this isn't happening, what is this kind of thing? You know, you, you don't you just don't know what to do with it at first.
2: So I'm getting a, a sense of shame yeah in, in in those early years, did you feel like you could have been openly attracted to people from the same sex with support from friends and family, or did the feeling of shame derive from maybe cues being offered by the people that surrounding you that, well, being attracted to someone from the same sex is bad or wrong in some capacity?
1: I believe that it's a demonic, this is a spiritual war that we're in. I, As much as human psychology, it's tempting to delve into that and try to come up with some kind of cohesive theory. I think there's there can be some truth in some of those theories, but the bottom line is that God created the first man and the first woman. We sinned against him ever since then. We're born with a sinful nature, deceitful hearts that cannot be trusted, and Satan plays well with that, right? Just like in the garden, he tempted tempted. Even it was up to her whether or not to follow that temptation. So do I believe that in those early years I took steps to follow um, those initial feelings? Yes. I, I think of it as a kind of a fire that when you start to throw wood on that fire, it becomes a raging inferno that you can't control. And for me, that's what it was. Um
2: well, Matt, I'm just really trying to get a context because, you know, in chatting with you a little bit, I got the sense that you were bullied growing up. And so I'm trying to wrap my head around, well, what is the cause of that bullying? Is it because people had this awareness that you were attracted to people from the same sex? Or is there another factor at play?
1: hmm I'm not sure I get what you're saying, but I'm gonna answer it to, to the best of my ability. Well let me uh, let
2: me put it differently. Is that you know you had said that you were bullied growing up, Why was that?
1: Why, why okay, you so so why when you we bullied? get back when we get back to the twelve and thirteen era and the boys' voices change, right? Hello, how are you? I am fine. that kind of thing and mines hi hi, what's going on? Like when I answer the phone, somebody calls the house and they think I'm my mother, you know what I mean? So that that alone is enough. Um, there were mannerisms that I had, the way that I walk and the way that I talk, the way that I write, I, I naturally gravitated toward um, following, if you will, literally following the pattern of women and the way that women did things. Um, I felt inadequate. I felt like I can't, I'm not naturally as macho as the other boys. I can never measure up to them. When they invite me to play kickball outside the house at 12 and 13 and 14, they think that I throw like a girl. So they start laughing at me. I didn't feel that I had, um, that I had ability to be one of them or to measure up to them or be part of. So I kind of veered toward what to me was comfortable, what was comforting. And that was uh, the woman kind of saying it, it at holidays early on, I would be off with the women talking about fashion and that, that sort of thing. While the men were off talking about hunting because I, I felt like I was inadequate. I couldn't compare to them. My, my interest didn't measure up to that, that level of kind of macho macho.
2: Well, and as you say, you grew up, in the 80s. I mean, towards late 80s, early 90s, a big chunk of experiences, but that's still a climate where there is a stigma to being attracted to someone from the same sex. Do you think that maybe the time period that you grew up in maybe impacted your self-esteem? Because there's, there's just a lot of cues out there that, well, you know, being gay is wrong. If you're gay, you're probably going to get a sexually transmitted disease, things of that nature. Do you think if you grew up in a different time period, perhaps, you know, if you came of age now, that maybe you, your feelings might be different or what are your thoughts?
1: What does that mean, that? if I grew up in a different time period that I would be okay with being gay and acting on...
2: No, like you wouldn't feel feelings of shame just thinking about it. I'm, I'm trying to gain a clear sense as to why it is that you had such intense feelings of shame, embarrassment for, when you think about it, pretty mild things. I mean, if you're young and growing up and you just feel drawn talking to women as opposed to men in the grand scheme of things. Is that really wrong or bad?
1: Uh, When you, uh, (laughs) difficult to figure out what you're trying to get to. Um,
2: no, there's no, there's no so that, motive to so that, any question. So I'm just I'm, trying to see your thoughts I'm as more. to if you grew up in a different era, do you think that maybe that sense of shame that was so intense wouldn't have been there?
1: When a man... Like I I am a man, right? And so when you have thoughts that go through your head that, that you want to see another man with his shirt off or have anal intercourse with another man, then you know this ain't right. Something ain't right, right? It's not something that somebody else has to say, "Hey, Matt, you should feel a lot of shame. Nobody else has to cue you into that. You know, there's something extremely unnatural about that. That man was not created to have sex in another man's rectum. That's that's not normal. So the shame is because it's sin, right? It's it's sin to to lust after that, to to act on that. as sin. The feelings are not sin if we don't follow them, but it's a it's a major. Um, a big big thing for someone that age you're like I didn't have an attraction to a woman at all like a sisterly kind of thing but but no attraction so you're thinking that the longer the teen years go the more it's kind of getting toward the time when people might think about marriage and that kind of thing so what's for me I can't it would be a lie for me to marry a woman and try to have intercourse with a woman when I have zero natural attraction to her that's those are the things that are, so it gets greater and greater. The pressure gets greater and greater as the teen years go on. Um, you're just thinking, I can't control this. And anyone who is outside of this kind of struggle doesn't understand that. So all they're thinking is, I just want you to marry, you know, the people in the church or whatever, if they really knew what was going on the best they can say is i just want you to marry a woman why can't you just be normal kind of thing maybe maybe not everybody said that but you know that because they don't get it they don't they're, they're thinking that you chose to be attracted to a man versus choosing to be attracted to a woman for me it wasn't that i didn't have a choice to i just wasn't naturally attracted to a woman I was attracted to men and I didn't want to be, I felt shame and guilt because it's unnatural, because it's against the Lord's design.
2: And let me make clear that, you know, all of this in terms of Matt's view that same-sex relationships are unnatural are Matt's view alone. But let's move <laughs> forward. So
1: the I, Bible, I, it's got God's word's view, it's not it's not my opinion.
2: But I know, but not every listener to Great A Nation adheres to tenets of the Bible. But I respect anyone that has your point of view, but I just want to make clear that not everyone is going to share th- that perspective. And really, that's the point of the interview is just, you know, hearing people out and letting people come to their own conclusion. Now, So did you have actual romantic relationships or did you mostly have intimate encounters with men you didn't know? What was that like? Did you have a a boyfriend? What was your first experience like?
1: Yeah, a a lot of people from a similar background who've had some homosexual desires, it begins with molestation in childhood. In my situation, no, I was not molested in childhood. Um, alcoholism runs in my family, and people warned me, "Do not, do not start drinking. If you get started, you won't be able to stop. It's a tendency toward a toward addiction to to alcohol and substances." So, I put it off through through the teen years when it was tough in high school, and those years when everybody else was drinking, I refused, and then when I was in Pittsburgh in, in University of Pittsburgh, down there where nobody knew me, I got drunk for the first time, I think I was 21 or 22. And I felt that sense of, wow, I can finally do the things I was always afraid to do. I was always so meek and gentle and had fantasized about things but never had the guts to act on them. So I had that that sense of what I would call today counterfeit freedom. Like it feels so so pure and so amazing that I can finally do these things. And so I began to kind of act out on the fantasies and, um, you know, hooked up with somebody here and then felt shame and guilt and waited a couple weeks and then kind of pretended that didn't really happen and then got drunk again, uh, acted on it again, and then pretended that didn't happen. And and so I had a, a boyfriend officially probably within a, uh, maybe six months or so, maybe a year of of that first drink. When I first got drunk, I, I should say not my first drink, but um, that first boyfriend had some difficult times in his past, or he wasn't. He was also from a small town in Pennsylvania, wasn't very accepted, and through his teen years, had a lot of anger, bitterness, resentment toward Christianity, toward the Lord Himself. And toward Christians, and so he was a voice, and uh, said, "F your family and anyone who doesn't accept you, F them, and all that stuff." And so uh, I was really, chew- I was really forced uh, during that period to to uh, to see that there was evil in the past that I was headed down. You know what I mean? That it was it was of Satan. It wasn't it wasn't just something. Uh, desires and feelings kind of in a neutral place or this is who I am or something. I, w- I was forced to kind of see, it was brought to my attention. This path is evil, but, uh, I didn't, I didn't feel that in that I had another choice, you know, and, and I knew that it was wrong, but I continued in it. I continued in it and it was about probably five or six years later until the catastrophic things started to happen, happen in my life where people i knew in the bar and um you know had hiv committed suicide overdosed i was severely addicted the 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 things that i had believed the the promises i had believed in the beginning like a knight in shining armor that one day i would be a a model in new york because i was tall and everybody said that in the gay bars the things that i believed didn't come true but the addiction and the the fear and the guilt and, and all the, all that stuff did come true. And it was just, it was a horror story. What I'm hearing from that is that
2: you're experiencing a cycle of fear and guilt, but in in those encounters, in those moments, you must have experienced some form of pleasure. So as as someone, as someone that identifies as straight and no longer attracted to people of the same sex were those feelings in any way genuine
1: those feelings where did, of, where did of, you those, those, get the, where do you get the idea that i'm identifying as straight and no longer attracted to men and all that
2: well i'm in your bio you say ex-gay so if someone is ex-gay how would you identify
1: Okay, so ex, ex-gay is maybe means different things to some different people, but it, it's kind of for lack of a, an entire paragraph to explain. Um, in, in my case, I turned away from following my deceitful heart. We're, we're all fallen creations as of the garden, right? So I turned away from following my deceitful heart to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Temptation remains just like any other human being on earth. They give their life to Christ. They say, I'm sorry, I'm bad. You are good because everybody has sin. I have a temptation to lie or cheat or steal in my past. I acted on that. I repented, gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ. The next day, I'm walking in new life in Christ. I'm in the Bible every day, reading scripture in, in prayer every day. I'm communicating with the Lord Jesus Christ who lives. He's the one true God on the throne. I'm communicating with Him. I'm in service in the church. I'm worshiping Jesus every Sunday. I'm, maybe I'm in a Bible study on Wednesday, but I still struggle every morning. I still wake up. If, I, if before I used to lie, I still wake up, oh, oh that thing that I, I should tell the truth at work, but it's so difficult. I really want to lie because I remember how easy that was to get through if I used to drink alcohol, abuse alcohol, then I wake up in my new life in Christ. Maybe I had a tough day yesterday at work. I just want to grab a beer because that was my old habit. You know what I mean? So we we live with our fallen natures and it doesn't go away. It's not like magic where we give our lives to Christ and suddenly we have zero problems and we're just like the Lord himself. That's not reality. That's not Bible. That's what people babble, but that's not true. So I wake up every day, I have temptation toward the same sex. Do I choose to follow it? No. Is it a struggle for me? Yes. Was it fun in my past life? Sin is pleasure for a season, the Bible says. Absolutely. It was so much fun for the first. I met somebody new and probably fun for the first two weeks, the first months until you get tired of them because men are not created for men. We're not created to satisfy one another. If you look at the male body, it's not... Woman was created for man to be his helpmate, to satisfy him, to, to meet his deficiencies, right? We're complementary. So I don't claim to be quote-unquote straight as the world says straight in terms of my temptation went from 100% homosexual attracted to 100% heterosexual attracted overnight. That's crazy. That, that didn't happen. But I've repented, turned away from following my deceitful heart to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Die daily to self to live for Him. Receive something better, satisfaction, fulfillment that doesn't go away. Doesn't? It's not one hour of enjoyment and then mis- misery. It's the joy of the Lord is my strength. I have problems. I have challenges. I have trials, just like everybody else. But the joy of the Lord through it all is my strength. He's with me no matter what.
2: Well, I, I just want to note that you know I know, and there are many. Instances of same-sex relationships, men and men, women and women, that have lasted for decades. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, there could be, you know, elements where you're you're going to encounter in life same-sex relationships that work, that are healthy, that are pleasurable.
1: Wow, have you you yourself lived a gay lifestyle?
2: (laughs) No, No, I'm. I'm not uh, the interview subject here, but I mean, if you want to ask additional questions, feel free.
1: Because that's what it would it would require you actually. It wouldn't require you looking through the lens of Hollywood or what's what's been kind of no,
2: no, no. Let Matt, it would, I want to be clear. You it's actually a, No, no, anything. no. It's not the. Because that, that what
1: you just said is Matt, crap. What you just said is bull crap, it's crazy crap that that's manufactured Matt, through Hollywood. And
2: let's not Matt, true. let's not respect true. one it's another. Matt.
1: Matt. The only way you would know that is if you had lived a gay lifestyle yourself, you would know that it's crap, that it's a facade.
2: Well, I've seen extended family friends have relationships that have lasted a long time, and I, I noticed that with many of your. Uh, appearances, when you have interactions with people, you uh, adopt a needlessly combative style and a confrontational style. I I really just want to have a a dialogue. So, I mean, this aggressive routine, it's kind of silly to me. Yeah.
1: So So aggressive.
2: Well, I mean, this needlessly combative way of going about things. I'm just asking questions and you know, you yeah. can give your point of view and people can decide for themselves.
1: I'm not giving my point of view. That's that's the problem here. You think I'm just babbling my own opinions. It's not my opinions. I'm telling you what the Lord has to say about it. And what I know to be 100% bulletproof fact because I lived it, not because I'm looking through uh, watching some movie that somebody put together to to like a propaganda kind of thing, but because I lived it, I know gay men out there in relationships for 30 years and 20 years and 10 years. And I don't know one single example where they haven't opened up and invited a third partner in or gone to the bathhouse and stuff. It's not true. It's a facade. So let's stop pretending that it is.
2: Well, that's purely anecdotal. I mean, there are instances of monogamy in same-sex relationships
1: Show
2: me um, them. Well, don't have the opportunity. We're not in a mode where I can show physical evidence at this time. We are having an audio-only conversation. Nonetheless, you talked about addiction. You know what addiction problems, other than the drinking, were you going through, and did you talk to anyone about? this addiction problem or these addiction problems.
1: It's evident by what you're saying that you're not a believer. You don't believe that that Jesus Christ is the one true God that has the power to save, that He gives the, the indwelling Holy Spirit to empower the believer to fight against temptation, to fight against sin, that we are fallen creations, that we need to repent and give our lives to Christ. So you will think what I'm gonna say is crazy, but I'll say it anyway. <laughs> Um, I repented, turned away from following my deceitful heart, gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ 12 years ago. The Holy Spirit came to live inside my heart.
0: no purchase necessary. Void we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Empowered me to fight against temptations. Is it a perfect, perfect thing where I've never, 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 never struggled with anything? No, it's not. And I've already talked about that. But I haven't gone back to drinking. I haven't gone back to gay sex. I haven't gone back to pornography. I haven't gone back to cigarettes. I haven't gone back to cocaine in 12 years. Praise the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And it wasn't through human psychology, it wasn't through somebody with an with an amazing laundry list of doctorates or something, none of that. It required power, supernatural power from the Lord Jesus Christ. I had to get into the Bible every day and pray every day and seek Him, hear from Him. He lives, He lives and He lives in me. I had to get into service and and do things that the Lord created me to do and find out why he created me, what the purpose of all this is. It, it's just been amazing. So it's been like life revolution that, that cannot even be described. If you, if you talk to someone who knew me in my past life and has seen the change, it's, it's undeniable to even the most antichrist of unbelievers has to admit that there's something to it because nobody just goes from what I was to to who I am now. And like I said, not perfect, but the Lord has given peace, the peace that passes understanding, the joy that comes from knowing him. He's, he's done so many miracles that it's just uh, undeniable. Praise the Lord.
2: What would you say to someone that would suggest that you were coping through life with alcohol, cigarettes, cocaine, but now it's transitioned to coping through an in-depth study of the Bible and principles of the Bible.
1: So everyone is born with a God-shaped hole. We're born to worship our creator. He created us to glorify him. And so we, we try to shove and cram things into that hole that don't fit and don't satisfy us. For a season they do, for an hour or two hours, for two weeks or a month. But there's not long-term satisfaction, long-term fulfillment from, from sin, from walking in homosexuality and substance abuse and all that kind of stuff. So I found the enduring peace, the, the, true, the true peace, the true joy that comes from knowing him in relationship with my creator. What was that moment
2: 12 years ago that you decided that a change in your life was necessary?
1: Yeah, you would, you would imagine that I, I decided I wanted to be a good person and wanted to be a missionary and wanted to be holier than thou and tell everybody else what to do. That's not at all what, what it was. It was, I was so severely addicted, I really reached the end of myself. Where, like, okay, I've been to enough funerals here, and uh, I'm seeing people kind of, drop like flies, and I'm going to be one of them. I knew I would be another quiet funeral if I continued. I was really that addicted. Um, I had heart palpitations from the cocaine. I was bleeding internally. Sometimes I would throw up blood and continue to drink. I was just that addicted and um, gave my life to the Lord Jesus Christ because I remembered the God of my family, and he had done miracles. and my, My mom was in a car accident when I was a young kid, and The guy that ran into her, it was an icy road kind of situation, and he passed away, and he was a believer, so we trust he's with the Lord, and um, she had a really, really hard time dealing with it, and I remember the pastor came out and prayed with us, and, and there was a presence in the room, and just through that time of grieving that we all kind of went through it together, I just knew that the Lord is real. It's not just a teaching or a book. He really is real, and there's there's a a comfort that he can give that nobody else can give. And so the Lord brought that to mind and brought end times prophecy to mind that he's coming back in judgment and I wasn't ready. I just didn't have peace. I had guilt and shame and he forgave it all. When I gave my life to him 12 years ago, I got on my knees beside the bed and nobody was around, no pastor, no nothing. And I just prayed the prayer that I remembered as a kid, that I'm a sinner and, and I, put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and asked him to forgive me. Dear Jesus, please come into my heart, save me from my sins. And he really did. I felt that presence <laughs> lift that, that burden of sin and shame and guilt, that demonic presence. I felt it lift from me. And that was when the war began. It, it wasn't like, Oh, now it's smooth sailing. Everything's perfect and no problems. That was when the war began when I really had to fight to follow him and get into the Bible and, rely on him for strength because the strength wasn't in me. It was only from the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. Well, what was the difference
2: from your childhood where you're immersed in the church, your family's heavily involved in the church compared to that moment 12 years ago?
1: What,
2: what's the difference?
1: What's the I'm sorry, the question again.
2: I'm just asking that. Growing up, you were immersed in the church and the teachings of Christ, yet Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, you feel like you didn't adhere to the principles. But 12 years ago, you had this breakthrough where you said there is a change necessary, and you became more immersed in your spiritual side.
1: I'll just put it that way. Yeah, so it's interesting. You you would think, well, you have you have the Bible in front of you, and you're I was memorizing scripture as a kid. Why? What's what was the disconnect then? You would imagine that, right? Sadly, that's reality of of human nature. That I think it was my grandma who, who said before many people don't look up until they're on their backs. We went through a lot of. Uh, I don't want to say rituals, but we, we, did, we went to church a lot and did a lot of things. And uh, I had some kind of shallow faith, but I, I, didn't, I didn't acknowledge the need for a Savior. You know what I mean? Like in a, in a tangible, real, day-to-day way, I didn't feel the need for a Savior until I was literally like looking down the barrel of, I'm going to die in this addiction. There's no other way out. Oh, Wow. And then it's like, well, who can help me? I can't help myself. Like, I I was just so addicted. And so then, okay, he can help me, but I have to surrender all. Oh, oh, like who I thought I was, it's all going to have to go away. And I'm just going to, I don't care because I want to live one more day. It's not about political affiliation and LGBT. Matt, can you talk about the
2: decision? What brought you? to Cambodia. What what were the factors behind that?
1: Yeah, where I lived in that apartment where I got on my knees and gave my life to Christ, May 28th, 2010, I was about two blocks from a church that was the same denomination as the church that I had grown up in. And so I went there kind of by default. It made the most sense. And it was a good place for me for those first four years of following the Lord. It was a large Urban church, diverse congregation, and many opportunities. They had a um, affiliated ministry that that did outreach to local youth, and I was able to share my testimony there, which was a really rewarding experience. And um, I knew that I was called to missions. I I just had always had kind of a a real deep interest in international foods and cultures, and trying to understand what things were like overseas, but had had not really um, known all that much about areas like Southeast Asia, about Cambodia, where that even was. But one day the pastor said, hey, there's an information session downstairs. We have a new missions partnership with the church over in Cambodia. Probably couldn't have found it on a map if you, uh, if you asked me to, but went downstairs and Nothing really profound was said during the meeting. It was just an initial information session, but I sat in the back and just cried, just sobbed. And I thought, okay, this is the Lord. This is just confirmation. I know I need to be joining this group. So I joined the group and we started meeting and started planning the first short-term mission. So roughly every year for the the following three years, came to Cambodia for just a short-term mission, maybe 10 days, two weeks kind of thing and uh, was confident that the Lord, that was a, a next step for me at some point in the future. But at the time I was, I was working at PNC Bank in Pittsburgh, had moved around with them quite a bit, had been with the company for almost 15 years by the time the Lord led out, which is another interesting story. They had asked that as a lower level manager that I support the LGBT agenda under the banner of diversity and inclusion. And I wasn't able to do that, to lead people down the path of death and destruction that I almost followed to my own demise and watched other friends follow. So that's how the Lord led out. And through the connections over in Cambodia, he led uh, over here to to be a witness to the LGBT, primarily evangelize the LGBT, and have a youth ministry over here, too. Praise the Lord.
2: So in your work as a banker for PNC, no one caught wind or had a sense that you were struggling with alcohol, cocaine,
1: what have you? I I was, I was quite a, Looking back and, and with spiritual blinders removed and understanding the spiritual war, I know that I was empowered by, I was leading many people down the path of destruction. I was a great example for making destruction and deceit and all kinds of stuff look glamorous. And um, in the workplace, I, I came up with dramatic stories. If I was late for work, missed a day or something because I had been out drunk, I called in one time and said that, I had, uh, had been in a severe car accident and, and the car hit me from this angle and had all the details all worked up. And um, just very just just talk about double life. It really truly was a double life, but um, some believed, I think some some kind of caught on to it, but some believed in my what I was telling them. I was a pretty nice guy and, and relatively good at what I did. Uh, much better at what I did after the Lord delivered me and gave me peace. But at that time, then I I came clean with my management and said, look, here's what's been going on over the past many years. And uh, the one, uh, they, my management, they weren't all believers, but some, some were, some had some faith, but uh, my one direct manager was really uh, not a, not a, not a born-again believer, but has come to to hear my testimony in churches and has been supportive and um, shown a lot of grace and mercy, respect for me and and what I'm doing, even if she's not necessarily on board with every facet of it.
2: When a person reviews the writings for your ministry, you had mentioned a monthly blog, at the very least trying to keep donors abreast of what's happening, essentially all the writings across the board seemingly focus on LGBTQ individuals. Why might that be, given that as a ministry, there has to be a broader mission other than focusing on LGBTQ individuals, right?
1: Wow, I like that you've, you've really done research um thank you so much the uh, my my mission what what i feel called and passionate and so blessed to do and commissioned to do it's my duty to do my passion my job my everything is is to witness one-on-one primarily now i stand up in front of churches i share testimony i I remind the church that the bible says for all have sinned and fall short of the the glory of God and for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord that everybody has sin a sinful nature and temptation and that the churches, is uh, the folks inside the church congregation who don't struggle with homosexuality are no better than than those of us who do or who have um, but but my day-to-day mission is really in the market a lot of times it happens unplanned it's when I go to the grocery store the Lord leads to somebody. When I go to the kind of open-air market over here, there'll be somebody who, in Cambodian Thai culture, they identify themselves uh, transgender, male to female, identify themselves as ladyboys. That's not a term that I came up with to sound derogatory. It's what people in general call call one another here in this culture. So um, the Lord will lead to, to folks that have struggled with homosexuality and gender identity. And then uh, typically the first question, typically they're interested in somebody who sticks out like a sore thumb. I'm very tall, obviously not from here. And and so they'll ask me typically, where are you from and why are you here? Why are you in my country? And, and that's how the Lord leads to to go from testimony. If they're interested to hear more, then I typically share the gospel message. And um, if they're interested to hear more and more open about things uh, of the faith, then I would go back and um build that relationship and, and continue to share the gospel that, that there's a way out of, of a gay lifestyle to, to freedom in Christ by repentance and putting our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's more often a one-on-one kind of thing. It's what, what I call relational evangelism. And
2: this answer here got me thinking in that you had said that you, when you wake up, you still have thoughts of attraction, temptation about other men, do you think that given this is something that from your point of view, you still struggle with on a daily basis, that it's framing your view of the world? And in that respect, that's one of the reasons why your blog entries, your writings, almost overwhelmingly more often than not focus on lgbtq issues
1: i'm called i'm called of the lord jesus christ to do this this is my job and my passion this is my life so it's not something that i came up with from my imagination or some bizarre thing that i've become obsessed with it's the lord jesus christ died on the cross for our sins to save us from everlasting hell So it's the most important thing that somebody can do as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is just share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it makes sense. If I was a severe alcoholic, then my ministry would be to severe alcoholics because I know what it's like to walk in their shoes, right? If I was a whatever, I, I struggled with whatever in my past, and I gave my life to Christ, and I've experienced some victory in the power of Jesus Christ by his blood, then I would go back to those specific people because I understand them. I understand what it's like to be them. Forgiven sin is ministry, right? There's, you wouldn't put a, a pastor with a, a wife and 2.5 kids and a white picket fence in an LGBT outreach, probably, because he doesn't understand the first thing about what it's like to feel what they feel, what it's like to be in that situation. So the compassion comes through the experience through understanding what it's like and that's how the Lord leads to connect, to build bridge.
2: Well, I mean, given that probably the most pressing concern in Cambodia, I would think, is the huge economic disparity in many individuals living in absolute squalor. I mean, from my point of view, I would think that outreach ministry work would be geared towards uplifting individuals that are in poverty with the word of Christ, because they might have doubts given their economic situation. So I'm, I'm trying to gain a clear sense as to why your focus isn't on outreach to individuals in, in poverty.
1: Okay, so let's kind of make that global, what you're saying. Let's let's go back to Pittsburgh or Washington, D.C. or Seattle, Washington or, or wherever in the U.S. And, and on a day-to-day basis, what, what does ministry look like? Somebody who knows and understands the Bible, who's a born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, realizes that this life is just a vapor, right? We're in a, we're in a waiting room sitting here with an opportunity, a very short opportunity, to make a decision where we'll go at the end of this life. If we repent, put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we go to heaven. If we don't repent, we trust ourselves, and we go to hell for all eternity. And so that's the biggest, biggest, biggest thing. So if I went out and gave every homeless person a cheeseburger and... and solved world hunger and and gave them everything that they ever wanted in this whole life but then they all went to hell at the end of this short life and i didn't do my job i had my priorities screwed up out of whack you know what i mean so the absolute number one most important thing is the eternal security the eternal destiny of people that's the that's the the job of the missionary that's been screwed up and twisted around when we mix kind of the world's agenda with the with the church's agenda but when we're giving people something to eat doing something good for them we're we're doing that for the purpose of earning the right to be heard for the gospel message so yes i do do good works we don't typically publicize with a loudspeaker here's what i did today i'm such a good person Because the Bible speaks against that. The Bible teaches against that. We're to give glory to the Lord. The Lord leads me to do something. He had that laid out for me in advance to do for me to help my neighbor and um, bring them food yesterday or something like that. I did that because the Lord led me to do it, and he deserves the glory. But ultimately, it's it's to get that person through the gates of heaven. It's for a greater purpose than just meeting a day-to-day need. So the number one thing is salvation when we when somebody gets saved when somebody gives their life to Christ then uh, then there there are also good works like you're saying here like a youth ministry in the neighborhood here another thing that that is obviously a a priority is to get them up in their their English proficiency so that they'll be better equipped to um, you know, to have a better job in the future and that sort of thing. But that's not the number one goal and of the of the missionary coming into a another country is to win souls to Christ to make sure they get to heaven. Because any of us can die in five minutes, right? So that's a much greater priority, and then the the secondary stuff is day to day needs. Well.
2: Oh. Someone comes up to you handing you a cheeseburger every day and that's the only thing you're eating. Yeah, that that's going to lead to some heart issues, I would think. But I mean, yeah, it's sure. a matter of
1: what I'm, What I'm saying is that the Christian doesn't doesn't go out and publicize and broadcast. Here I am get, delivering another bag of rice to the neighbors. Look at me. I'm such a good person. So that's why you're not reading every little good thing that I do on the blog because well, Jesus I mean, told me not to. You know what I mean?
2: Matt, respectfully, I mean, you do write about taking a youngster to the dentist and getting their teeth fixed, right?
1: Yes, because I'm writing to the people who are supporting, some of them supporting only in prayer and some of them supporting financially. So I'm accountable to them to report what I'm doing with, with the funds that they're giving. So, I mean, Uh, that was a big, a big step in ministry that had impact. That the Lord led to do something that was life-saving for somebody's mother who couldn't afford to fix a. It was a dental emergency where she wasn't able to sleep and wasn't able to eat, and it was impacting. um, Potentially, it would have been life-threatening over time. So that was a decision that that the Lord led to make to help, and then had broader implications in the community and and hopefully will yield some spiritual fruit over time.
2: So sometimes you can write about good works and sometimes
1: you can't. Well, we much? can write about good works to glorify the Lord, but every time I do something, then I wouldn't typically broadcast that unless there's some greater purpose. Like in that case, that was a big a big thing that happened here that needed to be stated. Otherwise, it's tied into other, other things that are happening. So it needs to be reported in order to be able to tell the broader story.
2: Now, you write
1: in the blog
2: that you went to Bangkok recently. And within that entry, you make a claim that a man that identifies as Muslim made a romantic pass at you. And you said or inquired if you would be willing to go up to his room on the sixth floor, room number 666. Now, many people who don't even follow the Bible will gain an understanding of what the number 666 means. I'm just trying to understand because you had mentioned that – in your past as a banker with PNC, that you had an inclination for telling uh, elaborate and compelling stories. Now, it's certainly possible that another man, another man, hit on you while you were in Bangkok. I mean, granted, that's totally possible. But you know, of all the possibilities, why the far-fetched line about six six six?
1: Wow, you're blatantly accusing me of lying.
2: No, I'm, I'm just asking because <laughs> in, in terms of mathematical probability, statistically speaking, the odds that you would go to Bangkok, encounter a man that identifies as Muslim, <laughs> makes a pass at you, oh. says go to his room. It's on the sixth floor, room number 666. Yeah, the odds of that happening. I mean, as a banker, I'm sure you've been immersed in numbers at one point in time. The odds of that happening are quite remote.
1: Wow, you're really stealthy. If you if you don't have any belief in in the supernatural at all, so you. If you're an unbeliever by definition, you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that that came to die on the cross for our sins and rose again. You don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of God at all. You don't believe in the work of the demonic, even though he's controlling your life. Then I can understand why you would think I'm lying. You would think that this can't be coincidence because you're a complete unbeliever.
2: No, Matt I'm, I'm trying to connect your past where you said
1: you were yeah you're trying to, you're trying to provide you meant kind of you trying to provide some kind of scientific diagnosis of something that that's happening outside of the human you know what I mean it's not one plus one equals two this is a supernatural thing that happened there he the the man that was staying in room 666 wasn't aware. If you read the story, he wasn't even aware. You could tell, I could tell by the expression on his face, he wasn't aware of the, the significance of 666. So it wasn't him that, that that orchestrated the room number and everything else, even if he could have, it was happening in the supernatural and the spiritual. Now,
2: if someone is you know inquisitive they would probably inquire with you you know, what's the name of that hotel and they'll ask does it have the number 666 would you be comfortable yes. giving the name of the hotel yes and they can endeavor on their own and find out whether or not there's actually a room 666 because many hotels don't have the room number 666 for exactly the reasons that you talk about
1: Yes. All
2: right, we'll leave it at that. Now you Do you want now? Uh, no, I, I don't really find it all that necessary, but if, okay. if if there are people that reach out to you that want to know, they're more than welcome to. Now you go door to door spreading the gospel and it seems like you investigate what you deem to be Inappropriate behavior. I mean, you're going to Thailand to investigate sex work, things of that type. How have your efforts been received within the area overall?
1: Uh, (laughs) Investigate sex work. Well, I lived I, I lived. and served in Bangkok for one year. So that was when the Lord launched the castaway ministries to the LGBT. And I, there I was in, in a hub. It's like, it's like if you found yourself in Las Vegas and then, then you're like, well, I want to witness to, I want to share my testimony, what Jesus did for me with prostitutes. You would go to the strip, right? Or Where, wherever the hub for the prostitutes is, you would go there. So that's what I did. I researched, this was 2017 when I had first, uh, late 2016 when I had first moved there. And so researched where like the red light districts and where are they and, and, uh, transgender community and all that. And then the Lord led there. And, and the first, interestingly, that time that I'm walking through during the daytime, maybe four or 5.00 PM and, um, I think I ran into one transgender male to female would call himself ladyboy, boy, and then talk to him just briefly. And then the second one, and I had come from Cambodia, neighboring Cambodia, different, similar culture, but different culture and also different language. And so. Okay, round two, name something that's not boring.
2: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh?
0: Ah, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Chum-a. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Casino is home to hundreds of Casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: I'm walking into the red light district for the first time there. And I run into someone, transgender, male to female, wearing roughly the same outfit that I had on, a black shirt and camouflage. His was was a woman's shirt, but mine was a t-shirt and then camouflage shorts. We both had the same thing on and he's from Cambodia of all places and had moved there uh, to work as a, uh, a massage parlor kind of thing and so on. So long story short, that was my first, that was the the beginning of castaway where the Lord led in, in a way that again, you, you could, you wouldn't say, well, a human being put that together or you're, you know, if you're if you're a complete unbeliever, you would say I'm lying because what are the odds that we would be wearing the same thing? That he's from Cambodia, a country that I had just served in several days before. I just moved from Cambodia to Thailand at that point, and knew enough language to build the bridge, and which made him feel comfortable and miss home and everything. And he reminded him of his Christian mom, who's been praying for him and all that kind of stuff. So the Lord really led in miraculous ways. So the the bottom line is it's not something that I'm coming up with in my mind and my my wonderful imagination that's dreaming up all this stuff or I'm in some kind of investigative mode. I'm going in to say, here's what the Lord Jesus Christ did for me. He can give you peace too. He can forgive you and, and get rid of all the shame and guilt and you can walk into new life following him and knowing that if you die in five minutes, you go to heaven. So it's not an evil that I'm doing, but I can see if you don't believe at all in the Bible or the Lord Jesus Christ appears to be evil or some kind of conspiracy or something.
2: I don't know where that convoluted response links into how have your efforts been received within the general community as to your work spreading the gospel and looking into what you deemed to be inappropriate behavior (laughs) so in
1: that so in that case oh deemed to be huh so in that case we're we're still connected and and during this last time i i met with that same person that i had had just mentioned that the the first person that the lord led me to in the transgender community there in bangkok and so um yes interestingly you, you would imagine you would imagine, you would imagine that in a nation, the U.S. Found on, cr- founded on Christian principles, founded to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can you can go on and on about how we've made so many mistakes over the years and everything, but founded for the purpose of worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We we're traditionally, a, a, a historically, a Christian nation. So you would imagine that if I went to the street in New York. If I went down into Chelsea, for example, you would imagine that my message would be greeted more with open arms, where over here in the what they call the 1040 window, the unreached people groups of the world and that kind of stuff, you would imagine that people would be combative over here but not back home, and it's actually the opposite. Over here, people are kind and sweet and respectful of elders, and I have gray hair now, and people are um, pretty welcoming of me, not necessarily believing. It, that's, that's kind of a separate thing, but they're welcoming and kind and respectful to me and willing to, to listen. The, the culture and the, the pace of life is not so fast over here, too, so people uh, often have a few moments and aren't so, uh, you know, like the, the American spirit is often kind of like, I'm, I'm rushing to the next thing, I just have a couple minutes, but over here people are a little more settled and easygoing. So praise the Lord. It's a blessing to be over here serving.
2: Now, same-sex activity between consenting adults is legal in Cambodia. So for outsiders, what exactly are you trying to achieve?
1: For outsiders, what's that?
2: No, People on the outside just trying to gain a sense as to why is it that Matt Karchner has moved all the way to Cambodia and spreading the word of gospel in Cambodia, focusing on LGBTQ individuals when same-sex activity between consenting adults is legal in that country. What is the ultimate
1: purpose? Do you know what, what a missionary is historically like, 1970, kind of what, what's the the concept of a missionary from your past and growing up and just being from the U.S.? A missionary is somebody who's called to the Lord God Almighty to go to other nations to preach the gospel. The only reason I'm focusing on the LGBT, because he's chosen me to do that based on my testimony. Like I said, the compassion comes through the understanding of having walked in their shoes that I can go and, and share with them rather than somebody who's never had the struggle so you're it wouldn't make sense I, I would have to to come from that kind of past to be able to speak into that that struggle and say yes there is a way out and here's what the Lord God almighty says about it he says uh, these people who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom first Corinthians 6 9 through 11 and such were some of you so in other words even back in the first century the Lord was delivering people from this kind of lifestyle, this kind of identity into new life in Christ, giving them freedom from it. Washed in the blood of Jesus, forgiven, the shame and the guilt gone and able to to have that peace that passes understanding, to know where we where we're going when we die. Praise the Lord.
2: So what would you say to someone that contends that your work is helping to embolden people that hate lgbtq individuals
1: yeah it's it, it, <laughs> that's a, a roundabout that's a you walk into a church environment and you you have a lot of dynamics at play nowadays and uh Like I said, the what I've what I've learned, you kind of start out with you don't know what you don't know, and it is what it is. And then over over the years, sharing in many many churches across cultures, and then you you kind of get feedback and, and get understanding of what people are thinking when you when you say this. At first, I'm just sharing my testimony. I'm thinking, wow, everybody sees what the Lord's done in my life, and we're all praising the Lord together. And then you start to realize that there are segments of the professing church that are passing judgment on me like like my my sin was greater than their sin and so therefore i'm less than them and things like that and so it's like wow if they can't even accept me when i've repented and, and i'm serving the lord have given everything up to serve the lord they can't even accept me then how about those that are still struggling out there that are that have not repented they should be treated with respect too and and um jesus loves them too right has a plan for them too so if they can't accept me how can they accept those folks so i've learned over time with the lord's leading to go into a church environment and say hey guys reminder for all have sinned right like your your sin is my sin is no less forgivable than your sin the Lord can forgive homosexuality just as much as a lie or gossip or gluttony or anything like that and give each of us new life in Christ if we're willing to repent and put our faith and trust in him. And so the goal certainly isn't to to empower people to be more judgmental. It's to, to humble them, to remind them that... Um, the sin of homosexuality, of acting on that temptation, because the temptation is not sin, but acting on it is sin. But those who have repented uh, the Lord can forgive just as much as anybody else, any of their sins. Praise the Lord.
2: So you are by no means a believer in conversion, whereby someone who identifies as being attracted to others of the same sex can be converted entirely to someone that is attracted to someone of the opposite sex.
1: You know, I hear testimonies of of people who who say that they've given their life to Christ and maybe over time or something. I'm not I think it's maybe different for different people, but they will say that they experience zero same sex attraction. And I can't go out and say everybody's a liar. I don't know. But um, for me, that has not been reality, and I don't believe that the Bible guarantees that. So I I would speak against somebody who says, the Bible says that God will take away all of your homosexual temptation. The Bible doesn't say that. Maybe maybe that's happened. The Lord can do anything. So I'm not discrediting somebody comes up and says that that's happened for them, but that has not been my situation, and I, I don't believe that I'm authorized to say something to other people that the Bible doesn't say. You know what I mean? It's not like if you join if you join our Christian community, I can promise if you follow these ten steps that all of your homosexual temptation will go away. I, I'm not buying that. I don't I don't think the Lord would have me to do that. I don't believe the Bible authorizes that.
2: So, where and when did you meet your wife? And Can you talk about what the experience was like having sex with her for the first time? My apologies.
1: Oh, boy. Um. (laughs) I met my wife in a church in Bangkok, and this is the same time just just shortly after I met the first transgender male to female in Bangkok that I just told the story where we were wearing the same thing and he was from Cambodia. And then I had looked for a church there because I hadn't been there for too long. I think I had, first I'd gone to a to one church and then thought, well this Sunday maybe I'll try this other church. that so was a Baptist church there and walked in and there was a she was a greeter and she uh, did the prayer hands in front of the face and said, which is the Thai, Thai greeting. And I thought, wow, for the first time, I feel attracted to her in the sense that a male is attracted to a female, like husband and wife, not brother and sister kind of thing. I know that I'm the man and she's the woman. Wow, wow, wow. It was, it was just an awakening for me, like a, a new season kind of thing, you might say. So the Lord had promised me a wife about six years before, and I really trusted him because he had set me free from alcohol addiction and cigarettes and cocaine and everything else, and I thought, he can do anything. Okay, I trust you, Lord. I can't see how it could happen, but I know you can do anything, so I'm just going to walk by faith. And and so I felt that he was leading to start dating, not to get married to the first one I was attracted to, but to start dating, kind of the process of seeing how this all plays out and the roles and who I am and uh, who she is and in this new environment and that kind of stuff. And so uh, I jumped the gun to make a long story short and married her, married the first woman that I would, that I was really significantly attracted to my whole life. And I was nearly 40 years old at the time. I was so thrilled and so excited that finally I could, have sex with a woman and be with the woman in a natural way. And and so uh she's very, very attractive, former beauty queen. And so uh, we got married and had known each other about four months in total before. And so uh we got married and we had started to slip a little bit in our sexual relations before the marriage so that was a catalyst I didn't want to be a a hypocrite missionary having sex outside of marriage so um I kind of opted toward getting married sooner than later so we got married and then the first time I just don't want to go into to the detail of the first time that we had sex but um yeah there's I've been very clear about how there's uh, it's a struggle for someone coming out of a gay lifestyle and, and embracing that, but the Lord makes all things new. And uh, I knew from our sexual involvement before the wedding day that I was, I, w- I would be able to perform. Was it always seamless? Was it always perfectly seamless at forty years old, with considering all that I had been through, and I had been sexually dormant until I met her for uh, over six years at that point. Um, so it wasn't, it wasn't seamless, but but uh, we had beautiful, fantastical kind of honeymoon and uh, really lived out fantasies together and, and really had some cinematic, amazing, amazing moments that I'll never forget. Praise the Lord.
2: I mean, the reason why I asked was not to be disrespectful is just that in your prior sexual interactions with people, you came out of it feeling shame. So I was just thinking it would be fair to ask, okay, coming out of this, encounter you're having sex with a woman for the first time what were you feeling
1: yeah it's beautiful because it's natural it's natural it's what the lord designed how the lord created it to be a man and a woman together the 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 what do you call it the physiological physiology i guess it is of of a man and woman It, it fits together if you know what i mean there's there's nothing uh bizarre about it. It's uh, much more natural than two men together. Praise the Lord.
2: Well, there's a focus on the two men. I mean, what about two women?
1: Obviously the same, not natural. Not You look at the genitalia and whatnot, it doesn't it's not meant to be.
2: Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just curious as to why there's the
1: emphasis on the man on man relationship because that's what I know personally that's what I've experienced on my own so like for me if I'm going out to witness to the LGBT typically would I go to a lesbian couple and and try to speak into their experience if if the Lord leads that way on occasion yes I would do the best that I can but I'm much more in tune with the feelings that a man has and how uh, the confusion there where you, you feel like this is who I am because these feelings are so incredibly strong and I understand what it's like to be with a man in a relationship and all that. So that is why my my focus in ministry would, would tend to be more on the male side. And when I speak about something from a testimony or experience standpoint, I would tend to speak out of my own experience rather than than a woman's experience.
2: Well, I mean, if you're sharing testimony with someone that identifies as transgender, I mean, you've never been a transgender. So why why would you share your experiences with an individual like that
1: yeah it's it's interesting it's in in some ways when i'm sitting there talking with someone uh transgender male to female in some ways it seems like light years away it seems like another planet from even where i was 15 years ago but there's enough of a bridge. There's enough of a connection because I identified as like, I found comfort in women and wanted to follow the ways that women did things. And there, there's just enough that I can, I can speak into the beginnings of that. Maybe I don't know the depth of it. I don't claim to, to understand all that they're going through, but um, the beginnings of it. And, and I think it's, I really have a heart for them. The Lord gave me a heart for for the people I'm um, to, to witness to and to reach out to. So I know that when I shed a tear for somebody from the transgender community, it's really the Lord's love for them coming through me. It's not me because 15 years ago, I didn't give a rat's behind about anybody, not even myself. I was in self-destruct mode. I couldn't have cared less for anybody. So I know that when I'm shedding a tear and praying for someone's salvation, in my new life, that it's truly his love and not mine. Praise the Lord.
2: You had said that you had entered this relationship at 40 years old, and your partner was a former beauty queen. Was there an age disparity at play? Uh, She's one year older. Oh, she's actually older. Okay. Now, can you speak to the experience over time and where things might have soured between the two of you? Have you read
1: my recent book?
2: No, I have not had the opportunity to
1: read all three volumes. Cause it's really remarkable how much you know about my ministry. I'm so praising the Lord for it. I'm, I'm, uh, so thankful that somebody cares that much to to delve in. I know you're kind of on the other side and you're not really uh, in support of everything I'm doing, but it's it's nice to know that somebody would care enough to read into it for whatever reason. Um, it, it's just the same the situation with with me and her. It's so it's so uh, unusual and so complex that that's why. I, the Lord really led to share, to write these testimony books starting years ago, and this was just time to write the third one, and this, these were the big life events that were happening, my testimony at the time, so I wrote about them. But on the other side of that, it's like, it's so deep and so complex that it, it can't really be summarized in one or two sentences. So I'd rather point people to the book rather than say a couple things that can be missed. You know, can be uh, misapplied. If I say, "Well, I think here's what happened," then it's like, "Well, she was right and he was wrong." If I say, "Well, I think that's what happened," then it's like, uh, "He was right and she was wrong." I, I just I would rather people read the book than than me say a couple one-liners here and then have people deduce things from it.
2: Certainly, but at the very least, did you find over time that she? was more or less supportive of your ministry work?
1: Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I was clear about that in the book, too, that in the beginning, just imagine if you kind of close your eyes, you're, you're thinking, okay, you're, the Lord's delivered you from, from really, really deep sin, a gay lifestyle, and laundry list of addictions and all kinds of stuff. And then you come into the church. I, I had stood up in, in that church where I had met her before we really got close. I stood up and shared testimony, kind of the deep guttural testimony. And please pray for me because I feel the Lord's leading to start dating and um, that kind of stuff. So she had known kind of overall, but there's it's one one thing to hear it kind of broadly, broadly spoken and then to be, in it you know what i mean to to jump in and get married to somebody from that and not just you can't really understand it unless you walk through it yourself right so the the passion that i have now for reaching the lgbt and for the mission and for it requires repeating my testimony over and over and over and over and and delving into that kind of humiliating stuff like what we're talking about right now it's not easy (laughs) it's not easy to walk through it it's humiliating it's degrading it's shameful it's embarrassing and the majority of the church folks are not in that kind of you know like folks that haven't don't come from this kind of background are not day in and day out sharing this kind of brutal humiliating stuff they're kind of you know doing more traditional church work and stuff like that. So I think she didn't fully understand, like, wait a minute, like I'm gonna be completely immersed in this, like twenty-five seven. <laughs> and so um that's where there's some compassion, I think. She signed on and she she knew what she was signing up for at the onset, but she didn't fathom really what it entailed, I think. And uh so it was tough for her to, to really jump on board and align with
2: it so do you gain the sense it's just from your perspective that perhaps she might be ostracized within the community what might be happening because you are testifying to so many people and some may not react positively and she catches wind of it or she experiences it firsthand
1: yeah I, I, inter- it's so interesting the way you worded that because i think there there is an element of of kind of uh she's beautiful she's a, she was a beauty queen she's run her own businesses she's successful in just about everything she does and historically she was kind of in the in crowd you know what i mean if if there is an in crowd in the church like the the folks that are kind of highly esteemed and um you know she was gifted teacher of kids and uh youth active in youth ministry and like i said her own business and everything like that and so so then she becomes associated with me you know i'm kind of the outcast in by by necessity i'm this is my ministry is what the lord's called me to so within christian communities i'm kind of a little bit ostracized and marginalized and kind of kept at arm's length. Like, we're not sure you're really quite one of us yet. You know what I mean? When I'm really honest about what's happened in my life and where I am now, it's, it's not a cleaned up story. It's not what everybody else wants to hear. And I think a lot of the church, we, we try to pretend like we've given our lives to Christ and now we have no problems and, and that kind of thing, which isn't reality for anybody but that's the facade that a lot of us put on. So I think when somebody walks in and, and really tells the truth, it, it makes other people feel uncomfortable. It ostracizes me, people like me. And I think it did make her feel a little bit like, like, she, like I said, she didn't sign up. She didn't realize what she signed up for.
2: And going back to what you observed as a youth, with your father and your mom and your mom being in more of a subservient role to your dad. And now you're in a marriage, a relationship. And there's a dynamic where your wife is known within the community. She's a beauty queen. She's made a name for herself. She's been successful in business. And perhaps she's not taking on that subservient role is that something that is a factor in where things are souring
1: yeah no you're looking from you're looking at it from kind of a civil rights movement and feminism and all that kind of stuff perspective and within a christian worldview god created woman for man she's to be his helpmate that's the original design so when we walk in rebellion against that it's rebellion against god and his word you know what i mean so it's not like because of something my mom did then i'm gonna expect this from her or something it's according to the word of god my mom just happens to be a good example of that not always the perfect example but a good example relatively speaking and like i said she was there's no Weakness in her, you know what I mean. As far as if you you were with her and and saw how she operates and how she manages things, it's, it's amazing. She's like a superwoman. So there's nothing nothing weak about her. Or subservient. It's just that when it when it comes down to it, the man is the head of the home. The Bible says Christ is the head of man. Man's the head of woman. She will submit to him in all things as unto the Lord. So it's not it's not a something that's negotiable or or As of 1975, the women's rights movement, you know, whatever year, the women's rights movement overtook the word of God. And now we just tear pages out of God's word because culture trumps the word of God. That's not how it works. It, It doesn't matter what you and I think. It doesn't matter how women perceive it or men perceive it or if I like it or you don't like it. It doesn't matter. He's God. He created us. He set things in a specific order for a specific reason to work a certain way. And if I, he calls me out of a gay lifestyle to be a missionary, to do this work that I'm doing, and then I sign on and marry someone who supersedes his will, that's sin against God on my behalf. So I will be accountable to him. You know what I mean? So it's not like, well, you need to, bow down in submission to American popular culture to Hollywood norms so that everybody's happy and applauds you that's not the goal of the servant of the Most High the goal of the servant of the Most High is if I die tomorrow I want to stand before the Lord with no shame and no embarrassment because I chose to please him over PNC over Hollywood Over the global church, no matter how wayward or apostate she is. The Lord God Almighty and his word over everything. Do you get what I'm saying? That's where we are. So she chose not to follow me. She chose to try to lead me in another direction. I chose the Lord God Almighty, the only one that cared about me when I was in the pit. The only one that reached down to help me. The only one that brought me to repentance and new life in him. I chose him over her. Praise the Lord.
2: Well, why do you think that God would guide you into being attracted to this specific woman given her personality traits and her beliefs about male-female roles and relationships, why would God steer you in a direction where you would be attracted to this specific woman?
1: You have really, really thought things through.
2: Uh (laughs) I'm the best interviewer on the planet. I mean, and I'm also the most humble person on the planet, as you can see. No, but but the, the point of... This show is really learning about people. It's not trying to you know say, "Oh, well, Matt Karchner's perspective is wrong or Matt Karchner's perspective is bad. No, it's to allow people to learn about the guest and for them to come to their own conclusion. So, yeah, we're delving deep, but I, I'm trying to understand it, it, God has guided you to a healthier state of mind from from your view. And I respect that. I'm not accusing you of lying. So what I'm trying to to learn is why would God steer you to be attracted to this specific woman? Yeah.
1: Okay. So. (sighs) There's a lot about that in, in the book. And I'm just trying to figure out how to summarize that. Like, I was confident in the in the days and weeks leading up to meeting her to meeting my wife that the Lord was leading me to start dating. I feel that where I went wrong was to marry the first one that I was attracted to because I to me it was like walking into another universe. You know the the whole notion of being I dated I dated girls in high school, you know, to please the family and that kind of stuff, but it really wasn't a natural kind of thing. It wasn't for the right reasons. And in this case, it was <clears throat> like the Lord's leading me in. It's, it's as if I never dated a woman before, even though I had it just wasn't a genuine thing so much. <clears throat> so I really, really needed <clears throat> excuse me, I really needed to take my time and try to fathom. I mean, there's such a massive difference between men and women. I really needed to to figure out who I am and in relation to her and who she is and why she says the things she does and why she thinks the way she does and what drives her, what are her ambitions and what's, what's kind of underlying, what's driving and what are her priorities in life. And there was just so much. I mean, if, if we had met maybe 20 years old, we were both 20 years old, maybe not so much, but she had her own past. I had my own past and there was just so much to walk through and, um, I really, I don't know that the Lord <clears throat> initially, I said, I believe the Lord gave me an attraction to, to my wife for a specific reason so that she could be my wife. And I've really grappled with that. Did was I right when I said that? Did, did he really give me an attraction just for her? And then the mistake that I made was to not take the time to delve in. to get to know her to that I just needed to give it more time or was she the wrong choice? Did I, was I just attracted to a very, a very sexy woman? You know what I mean? And, um, it was Satan's counterfeit, right? Satan does things that appear to be the Lord's work sometimes. And sometimes he does his best work inside of church circles so if somebody's trying to, if Satan's trying to take me down through some situation, he would be best to do it inside of a church. So It would appear like the Lord's working and appear like the right thing. It would be a, truly a counterfeit. So I really wrestled with that. And what, whatever I did, <clears throat> I, I went against godly counsel. We were counseled not to get married, not to get married uh, repeatedly and I went against that godly counsel, and I married a woman. If it was the right woman or the wrong woman, I'm not a thousand percent sure on that. I kind of default that it that it was uh, Satan's counterfeit that I married the wrong woman. But um, at the very least, I married the right woman at the wrong time. I didn't I didn't give it time. I didn't date like I should have.
2: Since the marriage has gone a bit troubled and you're separated, have you found yourself attracted to any other women that you've encountered?
1: Well, uh, Cambodia is very – Southeast Asia, I think, in general is – more traditional in the in the marriage sense than the u.s would be it would be a little bit like the u.s maybe a couple of generations ago where you um pull up to a market or something and people are like where's your wife do you have a wife are you married yet where's your wife we need to fix you up with a wife who cooks for you they'll say things like that <laughs> so um i get into a, a ridiculous amount of conversations about whether or not i have a wife and where my wife is and what happened with my wife and all the details surrounding it it's it, it's really a lot to handle in the beginning, but um, <clears throat> the bottom line is that I'm not, I'm not biblically able to shop around for another woman, you know, while, while I'm still married to my wife. So at the moment we're separated and that's been a while now, but um, I'm waiting it out. And have I, do I see women sometimes like in, on TV or something that I think are attractive? Yes. I don't know that it's, uh Like, Rebecca and I have personality similarities and whatnot. We had a lot of fun together. And um, I've often said before, if we could only be on vacation, like, the times that there there was no stress, that we had no mission to accomplish or anything, those were the best times we had when we were just kind of uh, doing, you know, having free time together. And so there was a lot that connected us, even beyond the, the, um, the physical attraction. But yes, I do, I do see women uh, that I'm attracted to, but it's just a no go for me while I'm still married. I can't be faithful to the Lord and be looking for uh, another woman. You know,
2: I'm definitely not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just trying to gain a sense as to your state of mind. So since the separation do you find that the thoughts of attraction towards men have flared up to a higher degree than before,
1: or has there not been a change at all? We had a very, my wife and I had a very active sex life. So, um, it was very difficult in the beginning, but that's in general. Uh, in general, I guess I would say is the best way to put it. Uh, It was more difficult in the initial days and weeks of the separation than it is now. Um, I've said before, if I, in my original testimony, uh, you know, in my teen years, for example, when I fed the fire, if I was on pornography sites and that kind of stuff, late teens, early twenties, that's when the fire became life consuming. So if we're in the word of God and in prayer and in serving the Lord, he keeps me busy and I have kind of a never ending to do list, praise the Lord. And so, um, it staves off that, you know, that, that fire getting out of control when you're, when you're busy serving the Lord and and his word cleanses, and it's, it's not easy day to day, but uh, the Lord makes it bearable. Praise the Lord.
2: So for the ministry, who have been the primary donators of your work? I'm not, I'm not asking for names. I'm just trying to gain a sense as to where they come from. Are they based in the U.S., across the world? Where are the donations coming from for your nonprofit ministry?
1: yeah it's interesting that uh, because of the nature of the the kind of unusual nature of the ministry there it's when they when they're kind of setting things up and getting ready to go to go overseas they would go from church to church and present their ministry as as the lord opens the door to get into churches they would present their ministry and say here's what the lord's called me to do over in cambodia and um, you know, if the Lord's leading, then maybe you as a church could support. And so that's typically how it works. Um, sometimes there are individual do- uh, individual donors. In my situation, sometimes it's more difficult to get into churches because homosexuality is such a controversial issue nowadays. And some churches would rather stick with something that's a little more, you know, in the black and white. Um so there are some churches that support, maybe to a lesser degree than a traditional kind of missionary. And um, those are in the U.S., yes, mostly Pennsylvania. I think they're all in Pennsylvania. And then uh, there are, interestingly, like like a pastor, this is very general, but in, in large part, percentage-wise, I would say, uh, men are l- much less supportive of what I'm doing than women. Women tend to be more compassionate about this kind of ministry, outreach to the LGBT, more, more uh, believing that, that their sin is uh, no less forgivable than homosexuality and that kind of stuff. A lot of times pastors' wives, strangely, strangely, maybe the pastor would not have a heart for the ministry, but the pastor's wife would be you know shedding a tear over over reaching out to the LGBT and having a heart and compassion for them. Um, in terms of individual supporters, it would be typically some typically a family that's impacted in some way by homosexuality. So in other words, uh, uh, parents have a son or daughter who went off to a city and and has a you know is getting married to someone from the same sex or something like that. Um, then they would typically be passionate for in some cases for a ministry like mine because they can understand the the need for it. So praise mm. the Lord, we have some some good faithful supporters. It's like I said, it's a small nonprofit. It's a small ministry, but um, the Lord's provided. Praise God.
2: For the most part, it seems like a, a solo effort. How have you been able? to sustain yourself economically? Do you, do you find yourself financially secure?
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely. Praise the Lord. Uh, before when, I, I was, I've been very non-traditional in many ways. And uh, the, the first one When I, when I was in that initial church, it was the same denomination as the church where I grew up. It's called Christian and Missionary Alliance Denomination. And the church in Pittsburgh that I was with, that where I started coming over to Cambodia on the short-term missions, I had kind of looked into, in the future, to signing on with Christian and Missionary Alliance to to come over under their umbrella. So typically, if you would do that, you would be kind of more taken care of, right? It would be a like a... Worldwide corporation of sorts, like a ministry corporation kind of thing, and uh, money would be funds would be funneled through that that missions organization, that church organization. But um, a lot of times in a church environment, they they will not be fully accepting of somebody who comes from a deep sin past like myself, you know. So uh, there'll be some questioning, some kind of marginalization holding an arm's length, like I said before, and I got the feeling that I wasn't going to be able to serve the Lord, that I would be kind of under some corporation type of a thing and directed in some other fashion and kind of molded into their, their values and their, their ministry goals and that kind of stuff. So I, I opted out of it's actually in, in the third book too, the, the book that's most recently pop- published. And so it started The nonprofit as the Lord Led, and that was 2016. Um, I basically announced in, in front of a church, I was going to, Pennsylvania, I was, I was about to share testimony and uh, sing in front of the church for offertory, just brief testimony. And I said, I'm, I'm moving to Cambodia, I'm going, going to Cambodia to serve the Lord. I said it right in front of the church. And then I sang, uh, like a hymn or some, you know, a worship song or a hymn. And the pastor, after I got done, he said, "Hold it! Wait a, wait a minute! Hold it! Stand up there." And he said, "What did you just say?" And I said, "I'm going to Cambodia. I'm done with PNC. I'm, I'm headed to Cambodia to serve the Lord." And he said, "Wow!" So he called the, the elders up front and they prayed for me. Typically, it's not done like that. Typically, you. Kind of fall under a, like I said, a, a large missions organization, and it's more structured. So we did very much a homegrown kind of thing. Started the nonprofit 2016, and and the Lord led from there. I, the first first donor, my my parents have been very very supportive, as they're they're so thankful for what the Lord's done for me, and and are just uh, support in so many ways. So they've obviously have to this day have been major major supporters praise the Lord and then my a friend from grade school that I had known since I was maybe 13 or 14 I used to dance to Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation in her in her bedroom. so she saw me from from the beginning and she had been praying for me through through the process when I was in probably in the gay lifestyle and when the Lord delivered me and so she, sent me a, a message and said, we want to sign on and, and and commit to supporting every month. So they're still supporting, praise the Lord. Um, and then it went from there. So little by little, but it's in the beginning, we had some, we weren't fully supported. And I had to work for a local school here in Cambodia for about a year. And then I also did some online teaching with a company called Dada ABC. That was a, for Chinese kids. So that was a blessing. Even, even in secular employment, I was able to share the gospel. Not everybody was happy about it, but, but had some good experiences there and serving the Lord. Praise God.
2: Well, I mean, you mentioned secular em- employment. Do you ever think that in, in the future that will be a bigger chunk of your life? Or will this missionary work be your future?
1: Yeah this this the sad part about secular employment like teaching in a school here in Cambodia for example it really occupies so much time that that basically I'm I'm not able to be a 100% missionary and 100% secular teacher at the same time so it really kind of tears down kind of the mission but um that would be kind of a, a last resort I don't I pray that the Lord doesn't Uh, that that won't be something I have to do again. But the online teaching was something that in a, in a dire emergency that I could go back as a fallback plan. Um, I trust that I won't have to, but, but that's something that could be done a a few hours here and a few hours there to kind of meet ends meet, make ends meet. But for um, the Lord has really provided, he really doesn't call someone and leave them for dead. He really, um, trained me up in unusual ways and I'm, i'm almost finished with seminary now and have gone through um so many different a lot of practical training actually more than formal training just how he's used to a lot of different avenues to understand the culture here over the years and understand how to how to share the gospel within that culture and kind of build a bridge to where people are now to the gospel of jesus christ and um yeah, the Lord's the Lord's taken care. He's He's trained me up and and given me everything I need to succeed. Praise the Lord! It's uh, I always say, trust the Lord to provide. If we if we give our lives to the Lord and put Him first, seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So even if the church isn't real thrilled with me, even if uh, the world hates me, and the church isn't real thrilled with me, even if the provision has to fall out of the sky. Somehow the Lord will provide. So just trust and praise the Lord always provides.
2: Well, if there are folks in the church that are marginalizing you, are they adhering to the word of God or are they in, in your words, almost like a demonic presence?
1: Yeah, there there are different kinds of, scenarios that are happening the the one thing the one thing would there would there would be one one category one bucket of one one grouping of churches you could say for lack of a better way to put it that would that would say homosexuality is no longer sin because of what's happened in culture and the rights movements and so on and and whatever we've just torn those pages out of the bible and god is love and that's the end of the story so that's kind of one one group so no they're not adhering they're not putting the lord jesus christ first they're not seeking to please him they're just kind of calling they're building a church when it's more of a community center than anything else because the Bible's the inspired word of god if we're not following that then what's the point and then there's another category of you know another grouping of churches uh, a large number of churches that would pass judgment on someone like me that like i said they would feel that and my sin's less forgivable than theirs. And then, uh, (laughs) nowadays with the separation, it really makes things sticky. So even within the Bible-believing, Bible-following, you know, kind of on-track church, if you will, for, they uh, could look at my situation, not, not being able to understand, not being able to walk in my shoes, And kind of say, well, you didn't you married somebody, you're accountable to the Lord to keep the marriage covenant, divorce is sin. So and they're right. That's the sad part. They're right. (laughs) I can't I can't say that they're wrong. They're actually right. It's just that when I got myself into the mess that I got myself into, when I made that mistake to marry someone that I barely knew. I did what my parents did I did I did what worked years ago. I escalated to pastoral counsel I went <clears throat> excuse me I went to one pastor and said, can you please tell us what the Bible says about who's the head, who's the head of the home how is this supposed to be structured who like <clears throat> if we don't know our roles and we're kind of standing here running in place like we can't move forward in ministry if if we, we both think that we're in charge you know what I mean? And so um, nobody would support, because I don't know if they're concerned about legal issues, if they would say something that that goes against modern American culture, that maybe maybe later on my wife could hold something against them and say, he said something that authorized my husband to be mean to me. Lord knows what, what they're all thinking, or or because... The church has many, many single women nowadays. There's so much divorce and singleness that maybe they're thinking, if I I have to kind of err on the side of the woman in order to keep the income flowing. There are so many different things that could have been going on. But the bottom line is they wouldn't stand with the word of God. They wouldn't stand and tell us, here's what the Bible says. They did everything to avoid it. And I consider the root to be money. Really, if you drill down to all have all that written out in the third book that was just published, all the scenarios that happened with the pastors and a lot of different things across different cultures. And, and if you zero and drill down into what appears to be the underlying, the drivers, it appears to be money at the end of the day. But anyway, so a lot of those people were kind of looking at me saying, you, you need to take responsibility for your actions and keep the marriage covenant, and it's like, if you really understood what happened in the details, which is in this third book, then you would know that I did everything that I possibly could, and because the church is really not following the Word of God anymore, wouldn't stand with the Bible, and so it's kind of shared responsibility. You know what I mean? It's not like I'm removing accountability and blaming somebody else. It's shared responsibility because yes, I made the first mistake that caused the domino effect. And then when I reached out and pulled the rip cord and started shouting, help, 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 everybody uh, jumped ship on me. Nobody would stand on the word of God. And um, here we are in, in the mess that we're in. So nowadays you know, you have some folks passing judgment on me as if I've turned my back on the Lord, because it would appear like that if you don't know the details of what happened. And that's that's all in the third book, which can't really be summarized easily. So please read it.
2: And Matt, just to you know, wrap things up, given that it seems like many within the community, including the church, have placed judgment on you for what you've done in your past and for being separated do you feel like they are suspicious of your interactions with young people
1: particularly young men are they
2: stereotyping you
1: you really have delved into my readings and writings or my uh videos and writings yes Uh um, There, there have been situations where, and this, that's why you have to read the book, because it, it drills into each, each scenario, because they're all a little bit different. But let's say there's a lot of fear in the church now, right? Because we live in an era where there's rampant, rampant sin and all kinds of pedophilia and all kinds of crazy things going on, so people don't trust people. And when you come in with a really unusual story off the street and nobody knows you or your family or anything, the default typically is fear. Like, unless I've known you for 10 years and seen you walk everything out, then I'm going to default to that you're probably going to go back and do something crazy again. Or maybe because you did this in the past and that indicates that maybe you'll do this in the future or something. But anyway, just one scenario I went to a church in Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia, but it was an American pastor, and I went there for the first time. I'd never been there before. I've never been there since, and walked in, and I sat through the service, and everything was just normal, and then on the way out, the pastor came over and said, hey, haven't seen you here before, and that kind of stuff, so I shared my testimony with him, and he was fine and dandy until I shared the homosexuality part of my past life and then his countenance changed and everything changed and he said we have children in our congregation here and we're very protective of our children and he walked me out of the of the building to escort me out to to my motorbike everybody has a motorbike here so i came on a motorbike he escorted me out to see to it that i got off the premises that's how intense it was and he didn't know me from anybody had no reason to suspect anything except the fact that before i was previously and this is how many years ago at that point probably 10 9 or 10 years previous and i said i just want to clarify that my past had nothing to do with children right you you understand that right and he said oh no by no means i'm coming to a final conclusion I'm just saying, we have to be very protective of our children. So he escorted me off the property. Um, The first missions trip that I went on in that church in Pittsburgh, the CMA church, I was accused of going to the boys' dorm at night, which wasn't true. Um, There have been so many scenarios that are documented in the book and kind of analyzed in the book and what happened afterwards and all that kind of stuff. And like I said, I really drilled them down to in, this, in the case of the Phnom Penh pastor, probably fear, probably more fear than anything. He's probably thinking, we're just afraid in this day and age that we don't want to take any, any slight risk. But um, when they're passing judgment on somebody like me, who just kind of climbed out of the pit, if you will, and uh, is trying to, to serve the Lord and be obedient to the Lord, humbly right humiliating myself regularly to to serve the lord and and praise him and glorify him with my life and they they're shooting kind of the wounded i would say they're they're shooting the wounded from within not realizing they're doing it like in his case the Phnom Penh pastor he's probably thinking that he's protecting the kids it's maybe in in his mind but in doing so he's he's really uh you know, potentially driving people, if he, if he had another guy, I mean, praise the Lord, I'm still here, but people commit suicide over lesser things. You know, you can't, you can't jump to a conclusion like that, accuse someone of being basically a pedophile, unless you have some rock solid evidence, you know, some kind of proof. So uh, that's a lot of the message to To the church, to be careful what you say to somebody. Like pedophilia is a is a massive, massive, incredibly destructive thing to a man like me coming from coming from something and embracing the Lord for my new identity in Christ. And it's not something that should be taken lightly or uh, accusations like that thrown around.
2: Well, Matt, hopefully you are not subject to any more accusations of that type in the future. I'm really appreciative of your time. This has been quite an extensive interview. There were some bumps along the way, but on the whole, I think we've had a great conversation. I wish you happiness and good health. Folks, if you want to learn more about Matt's nonprofit ministry, look up Castaway. Ministries, Castaway Ministries. a Nation, take care. We'll see you next time.